Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. My guest in this conversation is Adam Thomas. Adam is a coach that helps product teams operationalize strategy so they spend more time focused on building the right products and less time fighting fires. In this conversation, we discuss Adam's decision-making framework called Survival Metrics, which helps product teams make better decisions that specifically avoid sunk costs and loss aversion. We talk about how to earn the trust of our counterparts and how product people can be better internal collaborators, especially with sales and engineering, and how to make our strategy a living, breathing thing rather than, you know, some six-month-old document that nobody actually believes in. Going beyond that, we cover some of the key product leadership responsibilities that extend past product work that are actually required for a product leader to be an effective company leader. Please enjoy Adam Thomas. Adam, welcome to the show. Great to be with you today. I am super happy to be here, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I'm so glad we're getting this time together. So we were just chatting before we hit record and, you know, we were talking about all things product strategy. And uh, I'm sure that's something we're going to spend a lot of time on in this conversation. But I thought it would be really fun to start off by having, helping the audience get to know you a little bit better. So tell me a little bit about like, how did you find your way to this? Uh, you know, you mentioned a little bit to me about some of the, some of the gaming that you were into growing up and, and how that shaped it for you. But yeah, talk to me about that a little bit. So surprise for anybody listening to this and may have known me before or, or is interested in something different about me. I used to war game when I was. Since the age of four, really. And so what wargaming is, is when a group of people get around and they get a set of rules, they get some dice, and they get figurines, and they replay battles. And so what you'll see are these expansive tables full of little people going around, being moved in search of an objective and a play in a way to win. And so for me, this has been really impactful in how I see the world. And how I ultimately think about product strategy because I've been doing strategy for a long time, even if I didn't know what strategy was. For sure. Wait, so hold on. I just want to, I've never done this kind of war gaming before. I've played a lot of like, you know, RPG games and, and, um, real time strategy games. But when you say like a battle, do you mean like a real world battle? Like you're going to go back and replay a particular battle in history that happened in a real war? Is that the idea? Sometimes, right? You can do Erlu, right? Is an, uh, something that people would know a lot about, right? Sure, One of sure. the most famous battles of all time. Uh, maybe the Battle of the Bulge, some sort of campaign for World War II. But also, people can do things uh, from a futuristic past or futuristic future, right? One of the most popular types of wargaming is something called Warhammer 40K. And that is all about a futuristic... What a title. Yes. <laughs> it, it matches exactly what it is, right? Like Warhammer it's a bunch 40K. Of <laughs> it's a bunch of orcs and, and, and people and guns and, and hammers and, and spaceships. It's all of it. Warhammer. I love it. Yes. Is, is this like an online thing you can do? Or is this like you have to do this in person with people around a table? Because if it's online, I think I might need to end this interview right now and go, go start playing. Um, they do have online versions of the game that are very similar to um, real-time strategy. So very similar to your StarCrafts 
if you're if you're interested in in, in those real time strategy things. And uh, so yes, they have versions online or, or video game versions, but they you know there's also the tabletop version, which is a bit slower, right? There's a computer <laughs> not generating all the things for you. You got to put things on the table, um, but you also are guaranteed to have human interaction and humans make humans and do human things. Yeah. Especially coming out of COVID that, that sounds actually like a better, slower option. So I, I will somehow restrain myself from going to the online one, but you know, guess what? My, my next meeting just got canceled. Um, so I love this and I, I'm really curious, like it's so common, especially in the world of strategy, maybe, maybe most of all in the world of strategy, you know, you hear loads of analogies and, and God knows how many books of, War analogies and sports analogies, and, and these are probably the two most common sources. But I always find myself wondering, and how I'm curious to get your take here, how well do you think those things actually translate to the real world of business where, you know, hopefully we're not literally fighting for lives? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a difference for most people, a bonus or, um, you know, yeah. or a job, right? But I think, I actually think these things have a lot of application. But I think what the difference is between military folks and sports folks and business folks boils down to preparation and practice. Hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately. Uh, I've been really into watching pro sports, which I mean, sounds very common. A lot of people are. But sure. lately I've been really interested in how teams are made or how players show up on the day and what you see is no matter who the player is, it could be LeBron James or Bob X for Mm -hmm. using basketball as an example. Mm -hmm. They spend a lot of time off the court, practicing, focusing, thinking about the game, watching tape, right? These things are, you don't see these things on the floor unless you know they're happening and then you can see them on the floor. This is what coaches, this is what coaches do. This is what GMs do. Um, if you've seen the movie air that stars Matt Damon, um, it's directed by uh, Ben Affleck. It's about how Nike signed Michael Jordan for hmm. his first shoe deal. And there's a whole story behind it. But one thing you notice, Matt Damon's character is the star of the film and he is one of those basketball people. And all he does is he sits in a room and watches the tape. And he watches the tape way different than you or I would watch the tape. He's watching to see tendencies. He's watching to see who's focused. He's watching to see uh, who's who's been doing the work, the practicing, the engagement. Mm-hmm. And one thing he notices about Michael Jordan is when a ball, during the championship game, the ball comes to him. It's the final shot. He's a freshman on the North Carolina team. For those who don't know, Michael Jordan won the national championship as a freshman, um, and he hit the game-winning shot. He played for Dean Smith. Mm -hmm. Dean Smith was famous for his North Carolina program and how developed it was. Freshmen didn't really get an opportunity to be on the floor, and yet he got the ball to Michael Jordan's hands, and Michael Jordan takes the shot, and he's comfortable with it. And that's the insight that the coach has to uh, not the coach, the insight that the uh, the person at Nike has to put all of their chips on Michael Jordan. And I mean, all Mm, of them. Wow. That is the work of practice. That is the work 
of watching tape. That is the work of preparation. And so when I look at businesses and I, and, and they talk about sports metaphors and, and, and same thing with military, the same stories are in the military. What I notice is they don't have the other things. They just, they're just constantly talking about the game. Mm-hmm. It's not a lot of practice talk, yep. not a lot of tape talk. And as a result, while people may try to put some of the things that happen in sports in, in the military into business context, without the other things that surround it, they miss out. Totally. Totally. Yeah, no, I, I so love everything you just said. Uh, I, I've actually had a similar observation over the years. It, you know, I used to be an athlete and uh, grew up in a military family and always was fascinated by what is it that leads to outstanding performance in whatever domain that is, whether that's the military or sports or, or business or, or whatever. And I had kind of the same conclusion. And I, something I've been thinking about for a while. Um, how do you I have some thoughts that we could riff around, but I'm really curious how you think about dealing with that because I think your, your diagnosis is spot on, right? That in business, it's just, it's just game day every day, basically, uh, or 98% of the time. So how do we shift that? How do we convince people to shift that? Well, the way that we shift it is focus, right? There's one outcome as an athlete that you're going for or generally in the military you're going for. Mm-hmm. When you go into a business context, there's a million outcomes that are on the table and mm-hmm. all the time. And I think a mistake that leaders make is leaving that as the default state of the company that they're in. Hey, is that a good idea? Let's bring it in. Hey, is that a good idea? Let's bring it in. Hey, is that a good idea? Let's bring it in. And mm-hmm. so soon you have teams that have OKRs with priority levels. <laughs> sort of antithetical to the whole idea. Exactly. And so um, the first thing to to understand, I think, with goal setting and objectives and priority, not priorities, but priority is the idea that we have to get comfortable with the, with saying no. And if we do that, there's an opportunity to to find room for practice. There's an opportunity to find room for reflection. Practice for me in a business context looks a lot like retrospectives, mm-hmm. looks a lot like pre-mortems. Mm-hmm. It looks a lot like taking a look at the data that's coming in from the products that you ship and spending time digesting it, thinking about it mm-hmm. from different contexts. If you're constantly chasing after other things, then you become an assembly line. And great, you're shipping, but to what end? What decisions are you making? Mm-hmm. There's no practice. You're just constantly on the floor. And sometimes you may, you may score 20 points, but my bet is a lot of times you're, you're, you're winded. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, uh, you're unsure about what's next you and you're just reacting to whatever the defense is throwing at you. Totally. Totally. You, you know, the other element that resonates with me when I think about this question is, in the military and in the, in sports context, right? It is also normal that the whole person is part of the equation, right? Like you don't just get a player or a soldier and you don't just get their skill. You, you're, you, you have the whole human and the whole package of that with their, their emotions, their fears, their insecurities, their history, you know, the whole nine yards, which, which business by and large tends to be a little bit squeamish about. Um, and we, we try to, you know, most business culture is sort of want to pretend that's not a thing. Uh, they won't talk about it, things like this. And so I have always observed in, in the folks that I've worked with and, and, you know, folks that I've coached and many, you know, conversations and one-on-ones, 
that there seems to be a ceiling. There's almost like a glass in my, my perspective. There's a sort of a glass ceiling on performance for anybody. If we're only willing to talk about like the, the game itself and we're not willing to talk about like the mental game or the inner game, um, which is part of this for everybody. So I'm curious how, how that matches or, or differs from what you've seen. No, I think it's very true, right? I used to play football and if you don't run, when you get on the field, you will be tired. And that's your glass ceiling. No matter how talented you are catching or blocking, uh, you may have a natural talent for these things. But if you don't have the endurance, it doesn't matter. Mm. The other thing that, that that's spoke to me about that point is, as, although businesses shy away from that, the emotional side, the personal side, the things that all these things drive our decision making anyway. Yep. And so these biases will come in, they'll creep into how folks are thinking. And next thing you know, you know, why are we doing this? Because I said so. Right. And because I said so comes in a million different forms, but it's Mm -hmm. really because I said so. Yep. And uh, whenever you try to create strategic context in places like that, a part of that. Now, some of that is just going to be the nature of business. Right. There's just is what it is. But what. You have to unspool some of it. You have to create space because because I say so is really leading you or you're already at the um, assembly line. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's where you are. Yeah. Unless you unspool a bit of it and, and create space for to break that glass ceiling. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and it's one of the things that I'm, I've been really keen on and exploring a lot in my own thinking lately as well as podcast and writing and working with clients and so forth is like I, I've seen this pattern across domains, right? Whether it's business, different industries or athletes or, you know, fill in the blank. Um, the, the, the folks that I, that I, from my seat are the best and are, you know, really where I, or, or they're not, they don't have the results yet, but you're like, yeah, keep an eye on that person. Um, they're all willing to explore the inner game and how it shows up in the outer game. And because as you just said, you look, you, we're humans. We're already biased. We're already full of emotions. And those things are already part of the picture. We just choose to pretend otherwise. And I don't think that actually is doing us any favors. Now, this isn't saying like somebody needs to be, you know, bringing every single aspect of their emotional life into the workplace. That's not the point, but we are emotional creatures. We are you know, physical creatures as well. So anyways, I'm getting a little bit long in the tooth here, but I appreciate you exploring this with me. And and I'd love to, I'd love to push in more about, you know, focus and getting better at it, like in terms of practice cycles and learning cycles, specifically in the domain of strategy and, and, uh, and the, the hard calls that come up in strategy. You know, I know you're, you're exploring this concept around survival metrics. And so maybe this is a good jumping off point for that. So, um, let me just, let's just set a baseline here for folks just conceptually. So first of all, strategy and product strategy specifically, everybody loves to talk about it. I'm not sure there's much agreement on what it is. So why don't we just start by laying a foundation there of like, when, when you say product strategy, what do you mean? When I say product strategy, what I mean is what are these what is the problem that we're ultimately trying to go after? Let's be very clear about that. What are the bets that we're willing to take to solve that problem? And within those bets, what are the values going to be in how we, how we show up as we deal with those problems? And that should create some outcomes for us to judge our work on. And so what I think about when I think about product strategy, I think about an anchoring document that helps teams makes decisions around the problems that they're trying to solve. 
Hmm. Okay, great. Thank you. And I, I, judging based on what you said a few minutes ago, I'm assuming you would say focusing on the problem is the hardest part of that, given given the fact that business tends to be quite uh, scatterbrained, for lack of a better term. Yes. Yes. It's uh, CYA. Um, CYA being cover your ass, right? Yep. It's CYA-isms um, all the way down. Because if I... It's funny, because this is a problem I have with movies lately. Movies, when it comes to themes, mm. they dip their toe in, but you can't quite catch them, mm. right? They, oh, we're going to try brother against brother, but not really. <laughs> you know, uh, we're going to try. Uh, we're going to go for B movie uh, horror, but not really. We're going to go back. Right. You can't really catch it. They, they're constantly trying to be everything for everyone. Yeah. Which I attribute to the fact that I think movie studios just assume you're looking at your phone while you're watching it. Uh, versus uh, I watched Once Upon a Time in America the other day, and that is a four-hour movie, and you need to watch all of it <laughs> to understand it. <laughs> yep. like, there's, there's no, you know, there's no hiding, and we're just going to keep focusing on the. Um, which quick aside, which I think actually Affleck does pretty well when he directs, but um, but he kind of hammers it a bit, a bit too obsessively, but he does it. Um, at least he's committing. Um, and so. When it comes to businesses, uh, it's very easy to, to do that, right? It's very easy to be very scatterbrained and, and pull things. Very hard to say no because saying no means we're having, we're making decisions. And even though that's what product strategy is for, a lot of teams shy away from the actual decision making of product strategy in order to see why. Totally. So that makes sense. So when we, you know, you, you introduced this concept of survival metrics to me a few months back. And I know you're actively teaching this in, in your Maven workshop. So it's, it, you know, it has a core and it continues to grow and evolve as it's applied in the world. So I'm curious, how, how would you explain it to somebody today? So survival metrics is a tool that helps teams avoid sunk cost bias and loss aversion by creating language around change. Hmm. This language includes words like stop, pivot, and invest because they are designed to be simple and drive action. We wrap this around strategy, uh, what I call data informedness, which is a level of, of data literacy and strat- uh, storytelling, and political safety, which is all about how the organization works. We talk about this on a regular basis to generate these metrics that help us make decisions. Hmm. I love that conceptual framing. Could you walk us through an example? I'd love to hear a story of how this actually looks in reality. Sure. So I'll use an example from my past. I was at a company where they had just gone through massive layoffs. And one of the things that they needed to focus on was bringing down the spend on their infrastructure. Now, they were talking this to us on a leadership level, but I Mm. noticed as I started the folks on the ground, the folks on the line didn't quite understand why this was important and how this was important. Okay. And so when talking to the director of operations, I found, I heard a lot about this idea of, of saving money and chopping things down because this is going to give us a lot more runway. I know we just cut people, but it's really important for us to be alive, default alive. Maybe some folks call it default alive. And a lot of that's going to come from our infrastructure spend. But 
you know, I go to the product teams that I'm managing and they have not heard a word of this. Hmm. And so there's a lot of projects that are happening, right? And, and on the day to day, those product managers are scared because they don't know what they can stop. Mm-hmm. We always talk about empowered product managers, but that is a rarity. In mm-hmm. most places, unless the situation and environment has been shaped to create empowered product managers, then they're going to be glorified project managers at worst. Maybe they do some research, but in general, the idea is to keep the train moving. Yeah. Yep. And so I hadn't had enough time to create an environment for empowered product managers. As I said, I had just started. Mm-hmm. But there's a place where we can give people the understanding that they can make decisions. And so I talked to the director of operations and I got an understanding of what's the number. I had to go talk to my teams. What's the number? What's the number going to be? What's the number where we have to stop, you know, put the brakes on everything, run away. What's the number where we have to pivot and say, maybe we need to have a conversation and bring you in. Mm -hmm. They told me 10%. Mm -hmm. And I said, great. I went to the other teams and told them this, right? This is why this is happening. This is why it's important. And we're going to frame this metric. If something that we're building in production has an anticipated spin of 10%, we're going to stop and have a discussion. I didn't have the term pivot metric in in my head Mm -hmm, yet, but mm -hmm. we're going to stop and we're going to have a discussion and we're going to talk about how we can lower that spin and if it's worth it. Because if we don't, we're going to go away from our default alive status that affects how we operate. Mm. And so you, I put that up front and we talked about it whenever I checked in with those product managers. How are we doing? And so you noticed, as if you were an observer, you noticed our spend go down, mm-hmm. down, down. As other ideas started to spring up, both things they were working on and products that we could remove in order to lower that spend. And so these things are are coming together. And now there's a level of empowerment with those product managers. They feel comfortable in saying, hey, I noticed something. This is going to cause action. And that's what survival metrics is there to do. To get us away from feeling that problem with sunk costs, i.e. the feeling that we have to continue things Mm -hmm. because we've started them. Mm -hmm. A loss aversion, the CYA phenomenon we talked about earlier, basically meaning like if we lose something, then people are going to blame us. Yeah. Okay. So I think I'm with you. How does this work in a context where the team is not yet empowered? So for example, the all too common context that you and I both hear about all the time of, okay, you know, my teams essentially have pre-filled roadmaps from stakeholders, right? So at this point, they're kind of living the build trap and I guess my question is, is is this even an option in that case? Or is there like another set of agreements or conditions that need to be established first? So this is very similar to, um, you know, when, when, when you're talking about Scrum, sometimes folks say you need to do the retro first mm-hmm. in order to understand where you're, where the problems are. Sure. For survival metrics, if you're in a place where it is a factory and you don't have much of a choice, I think your job there is to understand why the factory exists. Factories don't start from nowhere. They're often driven by different parts of the organization that may have more power and leverage than product management. Oftentimes, 
this tends to be sales or this tends to be engineering. Um, every once in a blue moon, it could be design or it could be marketing. But there is a part of the business that the company is led by. Your job, if you want to implement something like survival metrics, is to take what exists. Right? There's some sort of strategy or vision that exists and go to that person or that group that leads that part of the business and then talk to them about it. What do they see? What do they understand? Because you got to start going on a campaign to get their buy-in. Yeah. And that's pretty difficult, right? It can seem pretty daunting, but what I've recognized in working with teams or going through this process myself, haven't always been a product leader, right? What I have learned by going through this process myself or seeing it through others is that one, oftentimes these folks have no idea how product is made. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You would be very surprised at how much they think product can do. They don't think there are any limits, not because they don't want or they're selfish. It's just that they don't know. Sure. And so yeah. there's an opportunity to go over there and say, okay, these, this is what's happening and this is how it's happening. Why would they want to listen to it? Why wouldn't they want to just keep going? Well, here's the other side of this coin. They've been disappointed by product before, which is probably why they've gone down this route. Mm-hmm. Why they're disappointed is because product has handed them a roadmap. They've are they've assigned a roadmap, and the roadmap is never done on time. Features are never done on time, and they don't know what you're doing. And so, what looks like an idea uh, for them is like there's just we gave them a list of things to do. They say they want a list of things to do. They say they they're okay with it, but they hardly ever come back on time or on budget. Mm-hmm. Getting them to go. Why is that? Or bringing that question or the conversation to why that is can make a whole lot more space in places where folks don't think they have space, right? And in that space, you can put something like survival metrics in. You can run a small experiment. You can bring in more conversation around the strategy, right? That's where that comes back into play. This is the strategy. This is what we're looking for. This is where we're trying to go. And then you can start to create a culture where things are more alive within not just the product team, but also in that sales team, because you're going to get information from them too. You're going to get information from these other folks. And so if they see the information that they're giving you is changing the way they think, if they see that information that they're giving you uh, helps them increase their outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. It goes to their incentives. It makes them, uh, for example, let's use sales as an example. If they see that increase in win rate coming from the work that you're doing, even when it's less, then they're far more likely to jump on board. Yeah. Yeah. It also seems like I think one of the most important things about this is just the, the, the collaboration, right? Just that approach of to having these conversations. And, you know, I've been having a lot of conversations with teams and really looking at this um the, the, the core relationship between teams and leadership and, and this sort of like the crux of the empowerment or lack thereof more commonly, unfortunately. And it, it very often comes down to very similar to what you're pointing at from, from what I can see, which is that it, it comes down to essentially a trust problem for a number of different reasons. And product folks don't understand usually the, the context, the concerns, the backstory of the other stakeholders, whether that's sales or engineering or the CEO or whatever. And those stakeholders don't understand either how the product 
works and how, how it's made and, and everything you just pointed to, but also they have, uh, you know, they have a lot on the line. And I feel like this is something that product folks typically underappreciate or don't even really think about is like how much, like how much of how big of an ask it really is to say to say a sales, a VP of sales or a CTO or a, a founder, like trust us, we're going to work this out. And that person's going like, uh, I have my bonus on the line. I have the value of the company on the line. And I'm not even sure you're going to talk to me and appreciate my concerns. So you want me to give you a blank check? What? <laughs> like, excuse me? Oh, my goodness. That resonates so much, right? Like, oftentimes when I am uh, coaching, I'll ask if the product people, some definitely on the product leader side of it, do you understand how everyone is compensated in the business? Seriously. And so it's very easy for you to get your check every two weeks. Everything's good. You're probably going to get a bonus or you're going to be fired either or, right? It's very binary almost <laughs> for us. Um, it so, goes really well, then it doesn't. <laughs> yes. It, ah, but, uh, you know, um, for that salesperson, you're talking about the difference between them taking a trip to Hawaii and having a great time or making no money. Mm-hmm. And when I mean no money, I mean no money. Uh, like they got to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And so for them, it, gets emotional because for that person on the line, that's a salesperson. Well, they got to go. They're literally trying to feed their family for a VP of sales. They're judged on how much they sold pretty cut and dry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're talking about outcomes yeah. over output. That's the ultimate. Yes. Did you bring in money to the business at a line that you, uh, you projected? Yes or no. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And so you as a product person, are walking in there saying, well, you should listen to me and we're going to make less stuff and we're going to hang out and we're going to talk sometimes and then we're going to go. And you give them nothing. You don't ask for their input. You don't ask what they're seeing in the world. You don't ask them to, you're asking them to do a lot for very Mm -hmm. little or nothing at all. Yeah. That internal value exchange is like way off. Very much. Right. I was talking to a, a VP of programming for a streaming network, not one of the big ones, but big enough to where everyone has heard of it. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and this it's probably went to a lot of people guess three of them. They used to write about 20% of the time. Um, but I was talking to her about what her interactions with the product is and everything she gets from product products, a black box to her. Yep. And the story that she has in her head, maybe true, maybe not, is that product plays side games. They're trying to get her out of a job by leveraging AI. They're backdooring with the CTO. And she and her whole organization are fighting for their lives for against the product team who all they see is people that say no to them on a regular basis. That's that's all they that's all they get out of this exchange. And so it's like, how do you think if product goes to that VP of programming and goes, hey, will you trust us? All the behavior I've seen in the last year and a half, two years I've been here and how you treat my staff. No, I'm trying <laughs> to get you fired. That was some real talk. Yeah. And uh, just explaining some of the stuff that we've talked about today. All I heard her say was, nope, don't do that. Nope, nope, nope. Haven't heard from them. No, nope, mm. don't know what their strategy is. No, nope, don't know what they're building. It's all no, 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 no. Yeah, it's funny. It's almost like we, we, 
as product folks, we, we pride ourselves. I think this is a fair statement. We pride ourselves, generally speaking, on our empathy, on our ability to understand people and what they need and what's important to them and their constraints. But it's almost like we reserve this benefit purely for the end users and customers. And very often, like we're kind of shitty to work with. Like we can be, we can kind of like departmentally be, be like shitty colleagues. Very much so. And watching this from other places, especially being external from the product team last year or so, watching these interactions happen, I got to the point where I mostly stopped defending product management because what I see in real, in real time is all the anti patterns we're talking about here from multiple companies, from multiple places. Yeah, nobody likes working with product management. Yeah, they see all this uh, propaganda around product management. They see people on the pool, in the pool hanging out, and then they start going, oh, my God, is that what they're doing? Mm-hmm. Like, I'll, all I hear from them is no, and they're in meetings, and they're saying what we're going to do, and we have to ignore them because my boss is like, yeah, they, they don't know what they're talking about. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you should do this over here. They're not really mm-hmm. helping us. Yeah. And so, yeah. When people see product yeah, managers, especially when like, yeah, and this is this is one of those things where especially if all of this is going on and the, the the product group isn't even really hitting what I consider to be like the bare minimum of of requirement to ask for trust, which is like being able to ship things, right? If you can't even mm-hmm. get stuff built, I'm not even talking about whether it was the right thing and it works, but like if you literally can't even ship, it's like what come what are we what are we talking about here? Like really? But yeah, I I, I talked to. I was talking to John Cutler about this and we were laughing like some people would pray to be feature factories because mm-hmm. at least they are doing something like at least they <laughs> like there's stuff being created. People are people are seeing some progress, you know, I want to circle back to this idea. So, you know, this this concept, one way you could say what we're talking about here is like collaboration. But that, that word is overused so much that I feel like it's it's potentially bordering on meaningless. Um but I think perhaps the the other word that you brought up earlier is evangelism, right? Like mm. you need to evangelize product internally. And I feel like product folks very often, we, we kind of get like a chip on our shoulders about this. We feel like we shouldn't have to or something. But the reality is like these are other equally important parts of the business and equally competent, caring, smart human beings. It's like, why shouldn't we have to? Like, this is, this is pro- actually just to go on a tirade for 10 seconds. This is my gripe with the whole term product led. I actually think it's wildly misleading. First of all, it is not only, uh, taking a go to market strategy and trying to apply it to an entire like company organization, which is misleading in the first place. Like one is a tactic or a market, not a tactic, a strategy. And one is like how a company works. Secondly, that's not even how the company should work. <laughs> like we don't want to be product led. We want to have product be on, you know, seeing eye to eye with these other groups and working together as peers. So, okay. End of rant, but I just thought I would tee that up. No, and, and I mean, it's perfect. And just to, to follow up on that rant, every other team, when you talk about something being sales-led or engineering-led, there's a discrete output that you can point to that points to them being led by that. What's the output for being product-led? That's a great question. I actually, so, I don't know the answer. I, I don't know that anybody has that answer. It's yeah, really it's very question. similar. <laughs> it's very similar to product sense, right? Everybody knows product sense exists, but no one can define it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, we, we, we do we do tend to get a little hand wavy in about some pretty important things. So I want to yes. I want to zoom back in really quick on on you know the the title of this this I, I'm really enjoying learning more about this framework you've created around survival metrics, right? And I can see how, especially in fast moving spaces, which most of them are at this point, uh, that are dynamic and there's new entrants to the market and then stuff is changing and you get you know it's it's to use the word we we said before he started recording it's it's very VUCA as the military would say right volatile what is it volatile uncertain. Uh, complex and do you remember the A? Uh, ambiguous. The, ambiguous. Thank you. Yes. Very VUCA. Love that one. Um, and so this is such a great framework for that. But I guess my question is just about the title of it. You call it survival metrics. Is, is this something that I need only when the company's survival is at question? Or is this something I should be using all the time? All the time. Okay. Because we, when it comes to product, even in these larger companies, we have so much waste. And that waste drives away the trust in the product org in general. Because, yeah, we promise folks these wonderful products that people use, these wonderful things that people can sell, these wonderful things that will retain customers. And when they don't, they're not talking, they're not going to engineering to blame them. They're coming to you. Mm-hmm. And that's your job. They should come to you. You're the one that's responsible. The reason why you don't have discrete output is so that you have space to think about these things. Your text is not the roadmap. Your text is not in Jira. Your text is not something or, 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 or a presentation. And when I say text, I mean the thing that the output, the thing that people care about. So mm-hmm. your job as a product manager is to help teams make better decisions consistently. Mm-hmm. And so, whether it's a fledgling startup just trying to, to get off the ground or a larger startup that's solid or a large company that is ready to go or been there for years, right? Either way, your job as a product person is to get us to make better products consistently by making better decisions consistently. And so where survival metrics fits into that is you want to get away from bad decisions as soon as you can. The earlier you change direction, the cheaper it'll be, not just in physical cost, but psychological cost. It's the difference between a really cheap paper and pen prototype and a full Figma thing that somebody spent three, four weeks working on. Which one are you going to tear apart? Mm-hmm. You're going to tear this one apart, the, the, the paper and pen, because it's, it's paper and pen. We can make another yeah. one. It's no, yeah, problem. no problem. But that four-week one, oh, boy. Ugh. Yeah. Somebody's feelings going to be hurt. I don't know. We got to promise. We They've been gone for four weeks, so nobody knows what they've been doing, so we got to show them something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For somebody who wants to kind of just get started with this right now, today, on their own, what could they do? Like kind of what's the, what's the get-yourself-started DIY uh, version of this? Okay, so there are three things, three phases. I in survival metrics, I talk about the three pillars of change. Because ultimately, the more you change, the more you're actually able to operationalize strategy. And if you're not operationalizing strategy, it's dead, Jack. No one cares about it. Mm-hmm. So three things. One, strategy. The first thing you can do, one thing you can do is to pick an outcome that's really important to you. And then share it to other people and say, we're only going to focus on this in three months. What do you think? What you get back is going to tell you a lot of information. 
Uh, people are going to say, but we have to work on these projects. Okay. Tell me about these projects. Why? Why are they important? And if they are things that we have to work on, why, why are we just hearing about this now? We have, we have to fix a bunch. That statement of we're going to focus on this outcome is going to generate so many questions that are going to help you understand the organization that you're working in and how effective your strategy is. Because if no one talks about this outcome that you set up that probably comes from your product strategy, then there, there's no linkage to it. That strategy is dead. No one's, no one's using it anyway. And so you might as well start fresh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. From the data side, pick one of the actions I talked about earlier. Pick a metric. There's a KPI somewhere. Pick it and tie an action to it. If we see X happen, we're going to stop. Or if we see Y happen, we're going to pivot. Or if we see Z happen, we're going to invest, which means we're going to stop X. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We make a really important point about invest. Strategies exist to help us miss the problem points. It helps guide us. It also is there to help us know when do we need to double down. And if you don't double down on strategy, it is also dead because you're Mm -hmm. not making any points. You're not saying what's important. Mm -hmm. If I'm hungry and I'm starving and I need to eat and somebody presents a plate of food or tickets to a show I want to go to and say, you can pick one. Well, the choice is pretty clear. You go to the show. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) I was like, obviously you go to the show. (laughs) Yes. But it's it's really clear, right? You're going to eat that plate of food because you need to get sustenance. You need to live. Mm -hmm. Right? Strategy should help you make that decision easier. Your data should help you make that decision easier. And again, if your data is not helping you make any choices, then it's nonsense data that I'm pretty sure, as a matter of fact, I guarantee no one's looking at anyway. Because it's not helping them make choices. So why are they looking at it? Um, totally, totally. And so for the third piece, which we already talked about a bit here around what I call political safety, find out who leads your company. And I mean, this should be pretty obvious. If you work at a place, you know who calls the shots. Grab coffee with somebody in that organization. And, you know, there's no stress about the coffee. You you know, it could be a drink. It could be a beer. It could be liquor. It can be a glass of water. It could be live. It could be digital. But just take 15, 20 minutes with them and just ask them about what's going on in their world. And what you're going to see there is you're going to start to be able to frame how decisions are made from that leading part of the business. And you should be able to start to create a map of how that affects you. And now you have some room to operate. Now you have a place to start running your own type of experiments around how things get done in the organization that you're in. Yeah, I really appreciate that last point, especially. And the thing that I also want to emphasize about that and just really underscore about that for folks is that it's very easy for us as product folks to to complain about some other part of the organization calling the shots, right? Oh, we want to be product led, but sales always does the thing, whatever, right? But going to the things we've, we've spoken about already in terms of incentives and understanding all these things, this is like, I think the fundamental, some of the fundamental work we need to do on our side of that trust exchange with whatever our collaborators are, the other stakeholders and, and parts of the business is like, we need to put in the legwork and do the homework to understand the business and understand their concerns and things like that. Like a, a, a company I'm working with right now, they, their product managers are paralyzed because everybody is terrified of making some call that gets this company 
on the front page of the Wall Street Journal in the wrong way. Right. So it's all about like the brand risk. They're all terrified of this brand risk. And it's like, okay, are you talking to your PR counterparts? Are you talking to marketing? Are you understanding these concerns and like what would do that and what wouldn't? And it's, it's, it's easy to say that, right? Being, you know, I'm, I'm external to the business, but it, it is pretty consistent that a lot of times what I've seen is that product folks who at the same time they have a complaint about not being sufficiently trusted. Let's just call it that aren't doing the work to earn the trust. I started my career at a company called DTCC, Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. And if you don't know what that is, don't worry, most people don't. However, it's incredibly important to how world finance works. Last year, I think they did $2.4 quadrillion in transactions. Yeah, it's a little bit. Yes, quite a bit, right? And um, it's funny, I think... the. The day we met, we had dinner and I, I talked to you a bit about this company. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what I learned there was, look, this is a company that is above board. They have to be. And in some places, some may think that they're the most audited company in the world because they handle that much money. You know what team I talk to a lot? Compliance. Right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> when, when, uh, in fact, Companies that are in that place where they're going to be in the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And in fact, I heard that exact statement several times. I would hear that almost twice a month, at least, if not if not more. Yes. And yes. And so you well know, like that, that is going to get thrown around. Right. Uh, and working in finance, especially in critical systems, I don't want to end up on the first page of the Wall Street Journal. That, that, that's it. Um, and so what we did is we often talked to our compliance partners and we got to know what is going to make us end up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And when you work at a company where that is a real concern product person, they have people there that sole mm-hmm. job is to make sure that doesn't happen. Have you talked to that person yet? Or even, you know, especially if you're in Europe, there's a C-suite level position dedicated to this. It's a data privacy officer that every company has to have, right? Once you hit a certain point, you have to have a DPO or else you will be fined, right? Have you talked to that person? And if not, okay, what are you complaining about, right? You're not, you're not going out and talking to the people that actually know more about this. They think about it more than a day than you have in your entire career, right? They're there. And they're, these people are often so nice to talk to because people don't Absolutely. reach out to them. <laughs> so, like, they're like, ah, oh, happy to talk about this, you know? And, and so there's an opportunity there for you to, to avoid that level of risk, that brand risk. Mm-hmm. And in fact, yeah, you also brought up PR, right? Communications people, same thing. I have a beautiful relationship with every communications person that I've worked with <laughs> because I'll go talk to them and get to understand what's your strategy for this? What are you focused on? How are you, how is this next release going to impact what you're doing? Right. Um, and you know, I, I did that with my product leader boots on, but you can also do that as a PM, right? Mm-hmm. How does that affect that? Cause again, people don't talk to them. They kind of just show up. And when you do talk to them, it's generally you're just handing something off that they need to go work on. And then, that's the only time to hear from you. Totally. And, and so a lot of, a lot of the things we've been saying here are 
uh, could could equally apply to a PM, uh, a director, a VP, kind of really any any level of altitude here in the organization. But I actually want to add one little bit, really for for the folks operating more towards the senior end of things and, and towards the executive end of things, which is in the background of a lot of things that Adam and I have said in this conversation is um, understanding incentives and the how those align or don't. And I think one of the one of the um, often unacknowledged jobs of a product leader, especially as if they're playing on the exec team of the company is to identify those misalignments, which will like kind of rip the company in half if unchecked, right? If, if sales is totally incentivized on like total deal volume, including like custom services, like guess what? You're going to get a lot of specials, right? (laughs) You're going to feel it. Like you're going to feel it, right? But if that kind of thing isn't being like identified and called out and brought forward, guess what? You're, everyone's going to think we're all marching the same direction because they're going to be crushing their OKRs, but the company's going to be ripping itself apart going in four different directions. So it's like focus in terms of not just what we build, but then that higher level alignment, I think, is is kind of what I hear in the background of what you're saying, Adam. Oh, very much so, right? In fact, at a product leadership, in a product leadership position, this is your job. Like this mm-hmm. is, honestly, if, if I wanted to judge a product leader, it's this and how you build your product organization. Those two things tell me everything I need to know about you. Like, of course, there are other pieces you need to be able to, to inspire the team and grow them and train them. But if you can't hire product people into your organization, you can't scale and match the needs of the company when, you know, you have a budget. Right? I'm not talking about if there was, a, you know, problems happening. I mean, headcount's already there, but you can't fill it. Or the other parts of the organization distrust you to the mm-hmm. point where they're advocating around you or acting around you, you have a major problem mm-hmm. and you're not 100%. doing your job. hundred, hundred percent. Well, Adam, this has been fantastic. I want to go ahead and close out here with a, a few rapid fire questions. Uh, you know, one of the things I always love asking people is, you know, obviously we think a lot about questions and, and the way the questions that one asks shape the actions you take and the results that you get. So I'm curious, given all the things we've been talking about in this conversation and everything you've been exploring in recent months, is there a particular question or set of questions that you would have the listeners start asking themselves that you think would make a difference for them? How much time are you spending in the dojo and how much time are you spending on performance? Beautiful. I love that. So I'm curious, what is a quote or saying, rule of thumb, guideline, principle, whatever that may be for you, that is really important to you, that shapes how you do what you do? Because I mean, I've seen you with groups of people and teams, and you clearly have an ability to drop in with the team fast, understand what's going on, understand the various personalities and agendas at play, all of that, and figure out kind of what to do with it. And you're, you're like really good at that. Um, which we could have an entire other conversation about, but I'm curious, is there something you have in mind that, uh, helps you guide through the processes that you lead? It's really not about me. And the sooner we find out what it is about, the better off we'll be. Hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. And uh last question, which is, uh, before we go ahead and close out is, is what is the homework you would give? Like if you were going to give an action item, a takeaway, a to do to the listener of this that you think would really move them forward more than any other thing, what would that be? Take out your strategy, the product strategy that somebody wrote four or five months ago, put it on a table with the people that are affected by that strategy and discuss it. What is real? 
what is not, what is going to help us moving forward, what is useless, what data matters here that we don't have, what data uh, do we have that doesn't really talk to speak to any of this that we're using on a daily basis. Beautiful. Beautiful. Adam, well, first of all, thank you so much for being here. It's absolutely a pleasure jamming with you. And I know the audience has benefited so much from what you had to share. Where can folks find you online if they want to get in touch? And how can listeners be helpful to you? TheAdamThomas.com is the website. You can hop on board of the newsletter there. I write something every Sunday. And generally, we're we're just jamming. We're having a good time. We have a little jokes, a little, little fun, little questions, little this, little that. That's what we do uh, with the newsletter. And uh, other than that, we, I'm exploring doing more live, active conversations with teams and folks. And so um, it'll come as a part of the newsletter. Joining the newsletter, I'll let you know. But uh, take a look at my LinkedIn page. Come by. I'll be hosting lives there that are going to be Ask Me Anythings. We'll talk about some of the things that I'm learning. We'll talk about some of the things that you're learning and you'll be able to ask questions. And it's more of a, just a community vibe. And I, I want to start building um, that because I, I want to get product folks closer to not just hearing about me, which is great. Yeah. Come, come learn about me. But I think the <laughs> thing that I've really, really appreciated after doing this for the last few months is seeing other folks talk about what they're learning and other people glom onto that. And so the, the, the audience is starting to learn from other audience members and there are interesting questions happening in, in these Zoom chats and like, who, who, right? We, we're, we're having the term idea sex is happening right in front of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I so love it. It's beautiful. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we will link to all of that in the show notes, but thanks again for being here, Adam. Real pleasure. Super happy that you invited me, Andrew. Let's do this again sometime. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners, and it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at makethingsthatmatter.com. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. See you out there.